of the cross is whether or not Jesus is God. The historical fact of his crucifixion is just that. There's countless testimony, countless evidence that this Jewish rabbi at the you know, beginning of the first century died a horrific death on a cross. And either he was just a man who died on a cross or he was the son of God sent for, uh, to be the propitiation for our sins and died for our sins and cleansed us of that which we had done and that which we were born into. And so I say that to set us up for today's verse because today's verse, not Proverbs 3 and 5, is one that we must rely on the Lord to uh, understand. And I don't mean just understand because I don't think we're going to understand what I'm about to preach to you. I don't think I'm going to give you the next chunk of verses and you're going to go, oh yeah, I understand that. Even if we do, we're going to wrestle with it, with our preconceived notions, that which we've already been taught, we've been influenced by, the hopes and the dreams that we have. We're going to try to make this fit into those preconceived boxes. But we have to not lean on our own understanding. I was reading how compartmentalization, taking things and putting them into these buckets we have in our mind is this uh, way that we have adopted as people to survive. So when we meet somebody new, we, when we come to a new job or there's a, a new concept we have to learn, we, we, our mind whether we know it or not, is looking for buckets to put it into. Okay, oh, this is, oh, this goes here. And then we start to adapt or adopt it more quickly. Rather than trying to learn everything from scratch, we find something we know and try to join those two things together. And that works in our day-to-day -day life. But when Jesus presents us with something that we have no bucket to put it into, there's no thing to join it to. We shouldn't do that. We tr shouldn't force it into that bucket. We should say, you know what, Lord? You get no bucket. You need no bucket. You are bigger than me. Your ideas and your ways are as different as the heavens are from the earth. That expanse illustrates the, the expanse between us and God. So if you turn to Mark chapter 13, verse 3, that's where we'll find ourselves today. And as you turn there, I want to set the stage just a little bit. Mark chapter 13, verse 3. Mark is uh, considered the first gospel, meaning it was written first, though it's the second one in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Chronologically, it was written some 15 to 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You might be saying, well, that's a long time. And, and yeah, it is in one sense. But if I were to bring in somebody, uh, let's say a survivor of Pearl Harbor, brought him in here today, him or her, and they retold us what happened on you know, D-Day or any other event that they may have gone through, we would sit and go, wow, yeah, okay. We would trust that testimony, though it is what? 75, 80 years? You know, if there are people who went through 9-11, you know, people, my children will still ask me on September 11th, like, what was happening? What happened that day? And we'll tell them 20 years later exactly what it felt like, exactly what we saw, exactly what we experienced, and the phone calls and the awe of, of everything that went, we went through that day. We remember the subsequent days and weeks. And all of us together collectively tell that story. So 20 years is really not that long when it comes to testimony, especially in a day and an age where written testimony and oral testimony was so highly regarded. 
But nevertheless, Mark chapter 13, verse 3, it's also known as sort of like a meat and potatoes gospel. There's no, there's no infant story of Jesus. It's very quick, right off the bat, up and running. I think it's 16 chapters, boom, 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 shortest of all the gospels. It's like just the facts and that's it. Chapter 13, we have uh, Jesus going to the temple and his disciples with him. They're marveling at the temple. Jesus, look at the temple. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it grand? Herod, this was the second temple and Herod had, had put a lot of money into the building of this temple. It was huge and ginormous and covered in gold and probably uh, ornate, but also probably obnoxious because it was just all about grandeur and the celebration of man and his stuff rather than God himself. The temple, as you will know, Jesus will go and flip tables because it's become a place of corruption. It's become a place of profiting. And so now Jesus is, you know, walking around the temple and the disciples are like, Jesus, look at the temple. And he says, yeah, it's going to be destroyed. Like one stone's not going to be on top of another. And I believe in 70 AD, this, this temple was destroyed and every rock was overturned and took off each one because the temple burned, history tells us, and the gold that was on the top of the temple melted into the cracks and crevices and to harvest all of that gold, they had to tur take off every stone that was on top of each one. And so Jesus' prophetic word about the temple takes place some 40 years after this visit to the temple. And it says in verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, that would be two sets of brothers, by the way, asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? And this is a really big question. All of us wonder in our minds the same exact thing that these guys are asking. So I don't know if this is just the 12 disciples. It may just be the 12 disciples. It may be a whole group of disciples. It may be the 12 plus other people following Jesus. But these four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they ask Jesus, pri Jesus privately. You know, they go off by themselves and they have this, this talk with him. They ask him this really big question. Well, when's this going to happen? What are you, what are you talking about? And end times is always something that is, you know, it's either predominant in our minds because we look at the news and go, oh gosh, Jesus, I hope you come back soon. Or it's in the back of our minds just sort of like, we've heard this for so long, so many teachings, so many videos, so many books, so many podcasts, like what's true, what's not true. It, when, when will this happen? And I have to be honest with you, if I was sitting down with Jesus and I was Peter, uh, Andrew, James, or John, I too would probably ask a similar question. When is this going to happen? Jesus is not going to give them an answer as to when this exactly is going to happen. None of us have an idea as to when this is exactly going to happen. I don't believe anybody who's ever predicted the return of Christ is anywhere near the ballpark of when it's going to happen. I believe that God the Father has kept us so close to himself there has been no revelation to anybody as to when this will happen. Only that it will happen. Now why is that? I don't know. But instead of leaning on my own understanding as to why that could be, I trust that the Lord has a day and a time in which he will return and it will be glorious and amazing and fill us with fear and joy all at the same time. And so that's what Jesus will begin to describe to the disciples. 
After asking them in verse 5, it says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for we will, they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much. Uh, your word is good. And this is not an easy word today, Lord. This is not a word that we just kind of latch on to and are encouraged and inspired and, and go out with uh, joy on our hearts. This is heavy. This is, this is meat. This is, this is strong food to eat today, strong drink to consume. But Lord, we trust that you have given it to us not to leave us confused, not to make us walk around and believe every uh, weird prophecy or, or theology, but to have our minds straight, to be able to understand you and to seek after you. We praise you and thank you and ask for clarity in Jesus' name. Amen. So, that's a lot. As I said in my prayer just a minute ago, that's not exactly fun. Um, there are lots of rooms, there's lots of room for study here. There's lots of room to poke around and what does this mean? What does that mean? I gave you some of the background of the temple. That's some stuff to study. Gave you background on the audience or my understanding of it. And that's some stuff to study. There's more after this. There's the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, uh, Harken back to uh, a prophecy in the book of Daniel. There's so much to understand here. The least of our worries should be the exact date as to when this is going to happen. Um, I wish I knew the exact date. That would be really convenient. Because if I knew Jesus wasn't coming back in a, or that he was coming back in a couple weeks, I probably would just be like, you know what? I'm not going to pay my bills this week. That's probably not the nicest thing, but I'd be like, what does it matter? You know, I'd, I'd skip going to Walmart next week for groceries. I'd buy, I'd buy better groceries. <laughs> I'd go buy some nicer stuff to eat because I knew Jesus was coming back. Um, I do believe part of the reason why this prophecy is open-ended. It always reminds me of when I was a kid and my mom would leave and say, hey, when I get home, I want the house cleaned up. And if she told me, like, you know, clean the kitchen before I get home and I'll be back in two hours, I waited until about an hour and 45 minutes and then I went to the kitchen and cleaned everything. You know, when she kept it open-ended and I didn't know really where she was going or what she was doing, I was like, oh, there was that, I, I, have to, I have to do this. I have to do what my mom has told me. I have to do this job before she returns. When she's coming home, I don't know, so I better start now. And I was busy about my mother's work for the most, most of the time that she was gone. That one time. The other times I just, I didn't do it because, you know, I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't the best of sons, I guess. But nevertheless, the idea is the same. I believe that should God have given us a date we'd all kind of loaf about until that date actually came. 
And maybe not intentionally, but we'd keep saying, well, you know, that date's not coming. Oh, that date's not coming. And then it'd be upon us to be like, oh no, we didn't do any work. And we'd be caught without oil in our lamps. But nevertheless, let's pretend for a moment we are Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Jesus is just unloading this on us. We're just sitting at his feet as he tells us this, going, what in the world did he just say? Brother turning in brother, children turning in parents unto death, standing before governors and councils. Look, I, I do not relish the times or moments where I have to interact with our government. We had to pay our taxes this week or file our taxes this week, I should say. And the whole time, I'm just like, ah. Oh. Because the system is just complex, needlessly complex. And it's like, you have to pay us your taxes. Well, how much are, are they? Well, you have to figure it out. Oh, okay. Well, how, what if I pay it wrong? Then we're going to penalize you. Well, it's not fair. You've got to give us a mark to hit, man. Nevertheless, sit down and just, just, I just want to make sure, like, I don't care. Just, I'll give you more money as long as you stay at bay. You stay back. This is the line. Don't cross this line. Uh, you want taxes? Here's your taxes. I'll render under Caesar. I got a verse for it. Just, just, but just don't encroach. Don't come in because once you step in, it gets so much more complicated. And now Jesus is saying, you're going to stand before governors and councils. And it's like, ah, Oh, and, and maybe, just maybe, and I would, I would wager that there are some very well-educated, well-versed, spirit-filled men who would probably say that was probably for these specific individuals. And there's some argument to be made there. He's talking to just the four disciples, not the whole crowd. Maybe he means just these four will stand before councils, and we know that they did. In the book of Acts, we'll see it happen. But I do believe in general... We will stand before folks in authority and have to give a testimony as to why we believe in Jesus Christ, why, is our, why he is our Lord and Savior. Now, if we're cheating on our taxes or belligerent with the government and it has nothing to do with Jesus, that is not what is being applied here. Jesus is not saying you will be persecuted because of your Facebook posts and things like that. If that happens, that's on us. We invited that in. This is, why do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Why is he the only way, the truth, and the life? Why not everything? Why not plurality? Why not universalism? Everybody gets saved. Everybody has equal standing. Everybody is welcome to the table of God. We have to be able to answer that question. And it's for that reason that people will turn in other people. It's for that reason we will stand before councils. It's for that reason Jesus warns us. And like I said, none of this sounds fun, but here's the thing. This is woefully, woefully, and I don't use that word very often, underpreached in church for some reason. Where it is preached, it's oft often all about finding out when Christ is returning. It's cloaked and surrounded in mystery. Because that's what drives clicks on the internet and gets people to buy DVDs. So not only is it not taught very often or preached very often, it is usually preached in the wrong way. And that's not profiting any of us. 
our life should be better because of these verses, not worse or more mysterious or more confused. As a side note, and this is very important, this is, there are things in the Bible, I, I believe, which should live by the whole thing, and this isn't to discount any part of the Bible, but there are things for me that are, that are foundational. They're like pillars. That, they're just immovable. There are things that there's very little sway. There's very little wiggle room out of them. This is one of those concepts where the disciples are like, hey, look at the temple. Look how beautiful it is. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. This is Jesus saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Now, this is not Jesus' tips on how to wash dishes. Um, you know, my, my children, and I'm not throwing them under the bus. They're here, and I love them very, very much. And we have them do chores, and they wash dishes. And sometimes you go to get a dish, and you're like, this one wasn't washed very well. You know, and you call the kids, and hey, what is this? And then you give them a life lesson, and they love those. And, <laughs> and then you have them wash the dish again. Um, outside looked good you know, from outside. But then you get in and you're like, oh, you know, this isn't clean. And the Pharisees, Jesus says, they were, um, they would take the cup and like polish up the outside. Take a dirty cup, clean the outside. So that from outside, oh, it was beautiful. But you looked inside, you're like, oh gosh, that's bad. That shouldn't, that's, ugh. Oh, but the outside's so pretty. And he's using that as an analogy to say, wow, you guys look really good on the outside. You're all dressed up and you look really religious and pious and, you know, you're, you're getting all kinds of greetings in the marketplace and everybody reveres you. But on the inside, you're like that dirty cup. A few verses later, he'll say, you're kind of like whitewashed tombs. You're a really good looking casket and on the inside filled with dead bones. And the temple kind of is like that in this day and in this time. And we as humans prior to Jesus are kind of like that. And Jesus says, it's not that the outside shouldn't be cleaned up. Outside appearance has some value. But when the outside is the only part that gets attention and the inside is not changed, you have a problem. Start from the inside, which is exactly what God does, and change all of it inside and out. Clean the outside. And part of leaning on our own understanding is cleaning up the inside so that the outside will follow. Now, in our own understanding, everything we just heard sounds bad. In our own understanding, it sounds like pain. And we have been um, conditioned to avoid pain. We have been conditioned to see pain as only negative, only bad. As a result, much of our life is geared towards the least amount of pain we can experience. You know, what we're going to choose to make for dinner. Will this be more hard? Or will this be more hard? Will this be more difficult? Or will this be, this will be healthier, but this will be faster and easier and probably cheaper. Okay, I'm going to Taco Bell. Rather than actually make tacos, which will cost a fraction of the price, be so much better and better for you, but now let's eat garbage tacos from Garbage Town. We've been conditioned to go with that which is easier. And that's a really simple analogy, but in essence, it's what our life is geared towards. There are some weirdos who only love pain and we have names for them and we don't, we don't understand them. But I want you to know that not all pain is negative. Everything we've read here, Jesus is giving us not to scare us, 
not to worry us, not to make us anxious. As a matter of fact, continuously throughout the thing saying, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Because he knows that's what our, that's how we're going to trend. We're going to hear this and go, oh gosh, I don't want to do any of this. This is what I'm signing up for. And Jesus is like, calm down. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. If you lean on your own understanding, that's exactly what you will do. But if you will lean into Christ, you will read this and go, okay, I have been empowered to go forward in the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to save the world. We are not saviors of the world, but we are proclaiming the savior of the world. We are a conduit. We are a, we are a link between a dying world and a living God going to give the gospel. This is also, I call it worst case scenario, meaning uh, we often use that term when we have options. Like, well, this is the worst case scenario. You know, you're going to go to the doctor. Worst case scenario, you know, you're going to go to the mechanic. Worst case scenario, the whole thing blows up. You know, best case scenario, this. It's worst case scenario, but it's the only case scenario. There is no alternative. This is how it will happen. This is how things will roll out. There will be false prophets. There will be, and here's the thing, and I, I can't seem to get any traction on this for some reason, even though it's what Jesus says. People will look at ministries where there will be miraculous things happening and go, okay, evidence of the Holy Spirit present. And I would say not so. Not when they don't proclaim the Jesus of the Bible. When there is a ministry or a group or a person who does something miraculous and their miracles are coupled with unbiblical Jesus, Jesus that does not exist in the word, then I point more towards this false gospel, false preachers, false miracles that are mimicking in the same way that um, Pharaoh's magicians could mimic some of what Moses was doing in the book of Exodus. Again, we must not lean on our own understanding. But when we lean on Christ, when we do do that, what happens is this verse gets turned upside down, or maybe right side up is a better way to put it. We begin to see the love of, the love of Christ through this rather than anxiety and fear. Jesus didn't have to tell us any of this. Jesus didn't have to give us any of the word, to be quite honest. But yet he gives us this so that we might know that we might see, yes, limited, but we might see and not be caught off guard and not be anxious and trust in him. That he knows that he is in control. That there are no things happening that are catching him by surprise. The ultimate work is, of Christ is to save you from the just wrath of God unto the love of Christ. And I say just wrath. I, I, in the past, I've always just said the wrath of God, and it's still true, but I call it the just wrath because I want, I want you to know that the wrath of God is not just a temper tantrum. Ah, they're not doing what I want. So I'm just going to go squash that group, and here's an earthquake, and here's a famine, and here's a, here's a tsunami, and here's economic depravity, and here's a bad leader because I'm just mad. They're not listening. No, no. The wrath of God is just, meaning we have broken, because of sin, we have broken the covenant that we have with God. We have now experienced the consequences of that. Now we are being saved from that. And Jesus caps off this, uh, this first chunk here by saying, uh, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And I spoke about this on our 
our Tuesday night Bible study that we do on Facebook, um, James talks about the same thing, confessing our sins and uh, talking about salvation, but not in the sense of eternal salvation. We're talking about being saved like for the chunk between now and the day we die. Yes, we're saved eternally, but now we have this sort of battlefield we are walking through from here till then. And we need to be saved at every turn and every junction. We must be saved. We are calling out to the Lord, fighting powers and principalities. And so the just wrath of God is more than just his temper tantrum or more than him just not getting his way. It's the consequence of sin that we thoroughly deserve. And in the meantime, if we are saved, hallelujah, praise the Lord for that. But now we are walking through minefields, other people's sin and other people's uh, depravity and our own sin and depravity that's being worked out of us. Now, Jesus says four different times. In verse five, he says, see that no one leads you astray in context with false messiahs. The problem is we have uh, this sort of desire for a Messiah anyways. Before anybody even tells us, we need a Savior. We know we need somebody to save us. For whatever reason, I'm sure there's a big theological term for it, but here's what I know. I just, I know there's somebody that needs to save me who's bigger than me. When I'm a kid, it's your parents. When you grow up, you realize it's somebody. And there are people who have latched on to elected officials or heroes of some sort. This person will save us. This person you know, if it's, and that person gets killed or dies and nothing happens and they just gravitate towards something else or a different ideology or some other philosophy and they always come up short. Jesus says, see that nobody leads you astray because there are going to be people who want to lead us astray. I was reading about something this week. It was just another not very profitable thing except for this very moment where I'll share it with you. Something called the Lincoln Project, which I don't really know anything about. But apparently the leader of it and the starter of it like embezzled tons of money and allegedly and used it to uh, have encounters with underage and of age men. Um, and again, these are all allegations so I want to be careful with what I say but I was just like, um, somebody looked at that group and said, yeah, they're going to change the world. They're going to, they're the ones that are going to make things right or at least make it more level between us and them. And it was corrupt. Now, there are groups on the planet that aren't corrupt. I mean, that's the reality of it. But the truth is, we, we are so prone to look for a Savior outside of Jesus. And this is Christians as well. Again, I read, I told this to you, or I said this to you a few weeks back, there were these allegations against Ravi Zacharias and, and this full report came out this week and I was reading it and just like, so angry. And then you go online and there's people who are like, yeah, burn his house down. And others who are like, well, servant of God. And I'm like, nah, and I'm not here to grind any kind of an ax, but so many people who looked to him and trusted him and put so much weight on him, myself included, by the way, for me, it was like, okay, this was a man who could, who could explain Jesus in such a way that at least the person hearing didn't have to believe, but they'd be convicted or, or at least convinced. They'd have to go against what they were convinced of. They'd have to jump over the evidence to run to hell rather than hear what was just laid out before them. 
see that no one leads us astray because we're so prone to being led astray. Jesus says, don't be led astray. Verse 7, he says, do not be alarmed. This is wars and rumors of wars. I don't know about you, but when you turn on the TV and, uh-oh, someone just got hit with a missile. Uh-oh, somebody just launched an attack. Uh-oh, somebody, their, their plane was flying in a restricted area. And it's a show of force. And, oh, their ships are going into this canal and they're not supposed to be there. Oh, no, this person did this and this group did that. And, you know, there are wars on our planet, but then there's these rumors of wars. And Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be scared. Don't be troubled. When you hear them, when you see them, understand something's happening. It's hard to not be alarmed, though. That's the reality. And I don't believe that Jesus says, don't be alarmed in the, like, don't be alarmed type of a sense. It's kind of more like, easy, calm down. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And I base that not on my own feeling. I base that on the intimate encounter between these four and Jesus. Verse 9 says, be on your guard. Be ready. Be ever vigilant. Satan likes to attack when we are not on our guard. Sin likes to creep up when we're trying to coast and just rest and we're just burnt out. That's when more things come against us. Jesus says, be on your guard when you're delivered to councils and governors. For Christ, not for other stuff, as I said earlier. In verse 11, he says, do not be anxious. In this, in this context, he says, don't worry about what you're going to say. You know, I imagine standing before a governor or a council of some sort or some elected official or somebody in power, and it's pretty nerve-wracking. You know, what are you going to say? Am I going to make a fool of myself? What's, what's the proper etiquette? Am I supposed to curtsy? Like, what do I do? And Jesus says, don't worry. Holy Spirit's going to give you words to say. He's going to give you words to say right then, like right in the moment. And I believe that this applies to like every encounter we might have. In not leaning on our own understanding in general, we must trust that the Holy Spirit will give us words to say in every encounter, in every moment that we need words to say. To somehow say that, well, this is me talking and so I'm really smart and wise and I'm saying something profound. And they come over here like, this is the Holy Spirit. I don't think it works like that. I think Holy Spirit all the time. And when I say something dumb, that's me. <laughs> when I say something profound, not me. If you've ever given me a compliment and watched me get all awkward after it's because I don't know how, I just, then I just say thank you. Or I say like the Lord is good because I, I don't want to draw emphasis to me at all. Like I'm just, I'm just some guy trying to read his Bible and teach people about it. Verse 13, Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That means that we must endure. And I want you to see that at the end of this, at the end of the understanding of this is true liberty and true freedom. When you are all in on Christ to the point where you go, okay, these things happen and Lord, I don't understand them, but I trust you. I want you to know that that is where you find liberty. That is where you find freedom. That is where you go, okay, I can go forward. That is a place that Satan has very little ground to stand on. Jesus said to not fear man who could only hurt our bodies, but to fear God who could destroy both body and spirit in hell. To understand that what man can do to us is so limited 
when we look at it through God's perspective. And when we do that, we lose the shackles of this life, the things we might lose, and instead go, okay, liberty, freedom. Jesus does not promise that we'll be free of any of these things. In fact, it's the opposite. He's promising that we, we will go through these things. And there's no need to fear the things we know are going to happen. There's no need to fear the known. The unknown is scary enough. But this is not unknown. Jesus gave this to us so that we might know. That we could see and go, okay, here's evidences. And Jesus says, this is not the end. When you see these things, that's not the end. In the same way that when a woman is giving birth to a child and she has those contractions happening, these birth pains happening, the baby's not here yet, but the baby's on its way. Not much longer. So, you know, count the breathing, take the timing and all of that, maybe alert the doctor, but it could be days yet before the baby happens. Jesus said, these are just the beginning of what we would call the end. So that being said, we must be ready. Are you ready? You know, there's that parable of the ten virgins and five, you know, it's usually told as though the five who were ready and the five who weren't. But I always caught, you know, all ten of them fell asleep. Just one, five of them fell asleep with oil and the other five didn't. So it was really just one group a little more prepared than the other. Everybody fell asleep. Everybody fell into some type of a, a stupor of some sort. But the ones that are commended are the ones that were ready for when they had to be awakened. For those who could get up and run and go immediately and not have to look for their oil. And so in being ready, I mean, are we ready if the Lord returned today? Are we ready? That means have we thrown away enough of the old us to where we aren't heartbroken if Jesus were to return today. As a kid, you know, I'd go to a friend's house or a cousin's house and, you know, during the whole day you're playing games and doing stuff you probably shouldn't do and just hanging out and catching up and then mom or dad says, okay, we're leaving. It's like, ah, but I don't ever want to leave. This is the best. Why do we have to go? In your little eight-year-old mind, you don't understand why this ever has to end, and you're heartbroken. And I, and I worry that many Christians are kind of in that same mindset, that we love the idea of Jesus returning, but we kind of got some irons in the fire we want to work out first. And we must get to a place where those things are no longer so important that they supersede the most important. And so to be ready, we must do a couple of things. And the things that I talked about last week, and I won't go into them at length this week, but I will remind you of them. Number one is confessing our sins. Sometimes we do things we ought not to do, or we don't do the things we should do. Paul says that's the wretched man that he was, and he did the things he didn't want to do, and didn't do the things that he really wanted to do, or that he should be doing, and He's a big, jumbled blender of mess. But confessing those sins and, and f that we have fallen short is step number one. Um, 
James says, therefore, confess your sins in chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. First, we confess. Number two, we repent. We can't just be, you know, sinning and confessing along the way. We can't just be sinning and sinning and say, okay, Jesus, I did that. I'm going to keep going. No, at some point we confess and then turn away. We repent. We turn back. We turn away from that thing that we've just confessed was wrong. Number three, we crucify our flesh. And in essence, these first two are, are kind of like the nails that put us into that cross. But the crucifying of our flesh is, is the... It's the, it's the path. It's the way. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Where the fruit of the Spirit does not exist, the fruit of the flesh will. And so if we're seeing the fruit of the flesh manifest, we must take a look at ourselves and understand why is that happening. And then confess our sins and repent and crucify our flesh, our desires, our passions, the very inclinations that make the flesh the flesh. These will be the cornerstones or the foundations of prayer and the word and gathering. You know, as a church, we should be praying individually and for each other. And I'm thankful that we pray for each other. You know, somebody goes through something hard or gets sick and we pray. It's what we do. But we pray for our community. We pray for, or we should be praying for our community and praying for our world, praying for our president and our government. You don't have to agree with anybody to pray for them. Um, it's what we're called to do, to be people of prayer. To pray at all times in the spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 5. We must listen and devote ourselves to the word of God. Um, I read Exodus, not Exodus, I'm sorry, Numbers earlier this week. And um, a man gathered firewood on the Sabbath and they stoned him to death. I was like, ha, ah, I know I've read this before, but it's been a while. And, and my first inclination is, well, this met, these people just were presumptuous. And, and, and just went off on their own. And, and no, if you read it in context, Moses and Aaron went to God and God was like, yep, do it. And so they stoned him to death for gathering wood on the Sabbath. And I was like, that's a really hard word to hear. That's really hard to read. And I lean not on my own understanding. I understand that the Lord brought them into the wilderness and told them not to do these things. And this was a direct rebellion against that. This was not a mistake. This was not a, 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 a oops. No, everybody knew Sabbath, no more working. Remember, the manna's not falling on this day. You're not going to forget what day this is. No manna fell. There was two, a double of it yesterday, so we could eat today. Nobody's working today. That's not what you do. And when we understand that sin is sin, and sin is bad, we no longer question the consequence of it. We go, Lord, may we be obedient in it rather than subject to it.
But that doesn't, that should not prevent us from delving deeper into the word. That should not prevent us from digging in and going, but Lord, show me more. What, what, what am I missing here? What am I not seeing? What am I not understanding? Help me to adopt your mindset, your agenda, your will, and not just my own. And then we must gather as the church. I marvel. We're afraid to gather as the church. I mean, we're here, obviously. But I, I go to Walmart like three times a week and Home Depot a couple times a week and Target a couple times a week. I need to stop going to these places so many times a week, but nevertheless, around so many different people. And I understand there's a pandemic and I'm not trying to say, you know, like, oh, I just go out and do whatever you ever want and don't pay attention to science and anything like that. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have a different mindset towards church than we do towards anything else. And from a biblical vantage point, this is a necessity, not a leisurely hobby. Hobbies come and go. Leisure activities, yeah, you, you stop with those things. But this is essential. The gathering of the saints is essential. The gathering of the saints is uh, our way of keeping uh, accountable to one another. I saw this. I was going to actually was tempted to play it this morning and I didn't. But I watched. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued by blacksmithing. I know nothing about it. I've, I don't know what I would do if, but I watch and I marvel. And there's these shows where like, like forged by fire or forged in fire. They have to make a knife in like 20 minutes. It's just, I watch and just, wow. These guys have big arms, just like hammering metal. And I watched these, this man, this blacksmith make a hammer. And I was like, this is, okay, so how do you, how do you make a hammer? Because if you watch them with the hammers, you know, they're making a sword or a knife. They got these hammers like, bam! And they're taking the hard metal to make this metal harder. And so this metal's got to be pretty strong, but he takes this, this stainless steel cylindrical thing and cuts it with a bandsaw. And I was like, wait, that bandsaw is made out of metal. And it's cutting through that metal. And eventually he's going to use that metal to make that metal sharper or a version of that metal sharper. But So he takes it and then he sticks it in the fire and then he pulls it out and takes his hammer, starts hammering it down then takes it over to a press and he's do, 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 then brings it out. And he's got like this anvil made of metal, puts it on the anvil, puts this spike in it to make a hole for the handle made of metal, hammers it down with the metal hammer, bam. And I'm just going, that's the church. Everybody's the same and everybody's being used for the same thing. Everybody's being used to be making each other more like Jesus. It's not that you're so much different than me and I'm so much different than you. We're all just different metals being used and shaped and formed into different things. And at the end, what's he do? He takes his seal and he just goes, bam, and puts his name on the head of that hammer. And I was just like, ah. Oh. The word tells us that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the mark of Christ in us. And I want you to know that gathering is essential for that reason. Gathering can be done digitally, but not for sustained periods of time. Not so much that we abandon everything. It's funny because I think it was maybe three years ago there was a church on the West Coast. They were going all digital. This was before the pandemic. This was before any of this was even, we even had wind of it. They had an app on their phone and they could, 
you can just join the app. Comfort of your home. Turn on your tablet, turn on your smart TV, and just attend church there. And they were like, different times, man. I mean, this is what we got. Technology. Go for it. And they were roasted for it. Just, bro- you can't do that. You can't replace church with a screen. And it's funny how times change and a little bit of fear gets in people and all of a sudden, oh, no, you gotta. That's what you have to do. Look, be safe, be smart, but we gather. It's essential for the building up of the body of saints. That being said, let's pray. Thank you, Matthew. Give you your proper Christian name. Uh, (laughs) Let's pray together. Let's pray because there's a lot worse things that we might see should we live through any of these things. And we might as we see some evidences here. But we aren't to be alarmed by them or to be anxious about them. We should walk out in confidence as a result of them. Jesus gave us these words not to put fear in us, but to strengthen us and to embolden us to walk in his love. It is his love that gives us this. So let's pray. Let's stand. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your word today. It is quite scary, some of the things that are found within these verses. But that's only because we are relying on ourselves. We imagine ourselves alone, by ourselves, without any of these things, or without any kind of comforts to uh, protect us, any things that we might have to give us that sense of security. But help us to so look at these words and to abandon all of these false messiahs and say, yes, Lord, we have you, the true messiah, that you will see us through these things, no matter how horrific they might be, we may not even see them in our lifetime come to full fruition. There are many saints who have passed before us who can say that exact same thing. We may be the generation that sees the culmination of these things, but we may not. In either case, Lord, we want to be ready for your return, whenever that might be, because that is the promise. That is what we are holding out for. And in the meantime, Lord, you have given us a job and a directive to preach the gospel. And Lord, we have, we have faltered at preaching the gospel. Lord God, our churches are dying, not because people are uninterested, but because we, we simply aren't preaching the gospel. We're afraid to offend. We're afraid to, to hurt. And we don't want to hurt or offend anybody, but we must preach the gospel. So I pray, Lord, for every saint that is here and every saint that is watching, may you give them uh, a peace in the midst of, of all of this. May they see your love through this, Lord, for your word tells us you greatly love your people. You love us collectively, but you love us individually. I am thankful, though we are unworthy of this love, that you have given it to us freely through your son, Jesus Christ. It is for his cause and purpose we do any of these things. None of us here, Lord, have an agenda so big that it supersedes what you have called us to do. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us strength that you have promised us through your Holy Spirit to do these things. That as opportunities arise this week, that you would give us a chance to share the gospel with whomever we might come across. Lord, and like you've told your disciples, whether it was just for those four or universally for everybody, which I tend to believe, Lord, give us words to say. Help us to rely on you and not our own understanding. And may Jesus receive all of the glory. In your name we pray, amen.